When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture, uh, where I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. We're going to begin, although most people will probably be fed up of hearing about it now, by the, the autumn statement and its aftermath. Has there ever been a more depressing um, statement <laughs> given by a Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, well, it's um, <laughs> it's hard to hard to think of one in my lifetime. So, uh, there was there wasn't much good news there last week. It has to be said though, it wasn't as bad as many people thought it would have been. We had some very pessimistic predictions to the Bank of England a week can, or two ago. Can I interrupt you just for a second, Mike? But surely the fact that we now get stuff in in advance of budgets, whereas previously a chancellor was actually kicked out for that very thing. Surely everybody was saying in advance is not going to be as bad as they say. They're putting out all the advance information to make sure that it will seem better than we otherwise assume. Or am I being well, undue? I, I would I would say that the looking at the OBR's forecast, I had expected them to be worse than they were. And yes, we are heading into a we are probably already into the longest recession on record. Mm. This this is projected to stretch for five quarters next year the economy is going to contract by 1.3 percent the inflation is still going to be running at seven percent next year it will probably be higher than that as well but on the whole i had expected the obr to be more pessimistic than the bank of england in their assumptions that said jeremy hunt has had very little room for maneuver he has projected just about to be getting UK debt to share of GDP falling by 2728. He only has about nine billion pounds worth of what's called fiscal headroom to achieve that. Mm. But then again, I think one of my favorite bits, and I, I enjoy, I always enjoy reading through the OBR I, forecast. I'm looking forward to this one of my favorite bits. Okay. <laughs> well, this, this is, it's, 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 it's the wonderfully dry way in which economists phrase things. So obviously, you know, as a journalist, I'm probably prone to hyperbole, but it was the, it was when they note, noted the inconsistency in fiscal policy over the last 12 months, noting a massive expansion of state support, a large um, tax giveaway, and then this fiscal tightening that has now happened in the last 12 months. So you can, you, I, I was saying before, when we came back to this phrase about treasury orthodoxy, I, I found it quite amusing, just given how the OBR have clearly sort of giving their their, their dry take, their, their, their disapproval of what's been happening. But unfortunately, there wasn't much good news in there. We are going to see, for most people, that the next couple of years, even though the spending cuts that Jeremy Hunt has undertaken have all been reloaded and the tax rises have pretty much all been reloaded for after the general election, even though spending settlements are going to grow marginally, we are still going to see a 
huge contraction in household living standards of about 7% over two years, the first time that's ever happened on record. So a lot of people are going to feel poorer as a result. And after that, we then face this probably a return to 1990s levels of public services. But we must remember that a lot can change, that the further out we go, I was um, listening to a former government special advisor at the Treasury talk about this on, on Monday morning, because that's clearly how I like to spend my Monday mornings. <laughs> they, uh, but they, they, they pointed out that actually these, this event has basically been there to, to buy the government's time. And in practice, these, these things have a horizon of about six months. And, and yes, the forecasts at the moment are bleak, but we must remember that whilst forecasts can gradually worsen, they can also improve. And I think there's a tendency to treat these to treat these pronouncements as set in stone, whereas actually you and I both know, Simon, they, they can change. But, yeah. but at the moment, looking out towards the horizon, it's certainly remarkable things like fixing the tax thresholds six years out in advance. I would be surprised if that's um, taken. But what, what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have effectively done here is they have they've attempted to, I think, successfully move the debate in this country away from the big status and back to value for money again, which was something, and it, it, this does present a challenge to not just the Labour Party, but the country in general, because the last time we went through a sort of fiscal tightening, we were sold this line that because of the profligacy of, of, the, of, the, of the government, of the last Labour government, we needed to have austerity. Now, I do not subscribe to that. But what we do have to acknowledge is that our economy is a great deal smaller mm-hmm. over the last 10, 10, uh, 10 years than it should have been. It is largely due to weaker than expected growth. We've had some of the weaker than expected growth, uh, some of the weakest growth of any advanced economy in that time. Living standards have largely stagnated. And these are all the results of the Conservatives' economic mm-hmm. policies as well. Now, some things you could say we're always going to happen. For example, the increase in uh, borrowing costs from historic lows. But a lot of that's been driven by the government's reliance on monetary policy, reliance on quantitative easing to an excessive degree, I would argue, keeping interest rates low, but whilst inflating asset prices. One of the things that is going to prove trickiest in the long run is that Jeremy Hunter sunsetted the changes to stamp duty that were implemented in the plan for growth by Quasi Quartain until 2025. We're also projected to see a 9% drop in house prices as well. Now, I think that is probably the ticking time bomb that is at the heart of this statement. And certainly, given the fact that people often joke that we're either a health service with an economy attached mm. or a housing market with an economy attached, that could potentially be a big shock to the UK economy. But there is scope for things to improve and to do better. But ultimately, what we are seeing is a lot of the long-term trends and the failure of the government to act in these areas, particularly to encourage long-term productive growth coming home to roost. And three quarters of that fiscal black hole they had to fill, I would say, could have largely been mitigated by better policy choices made by this government since 2010. So if Labour have any sense, they'll pivot to that to pay the Tories back for the uh, 2008 to 10 nonsense about having... uh, crash the economy on a prawn cocktail charm offensive to bring that Nick Cleggism back yes. into line. Um, I, one thing that surprised me is that um, there was so little said about how to restore growth to the economy, very little by way of, of policy in that area, but nothing much about 
infrastructure spending either, because most economists now believe right. that infrastructure spending actually benefits the economy by more than is actually spent on it. The one bit of infrastructure that they're still persisting with is HS2, where finally everybody is actually saying, well, the multiplier on that, though, is less than one, and it will actually bring in less than it's costing. I, I mean, given how expensive HS2 is, were you surprised that there was no talk about trying somehow to to stop the hemorrhaging of cash? What is it, 100 billion they're saying now? I, I am surprised that uh, given the amount that the Conservatives felt they should just, I think this comes down to again the short termism of, of many politicians. And again, you can understand this if you genuinely believe. I think as Truss and Quartain did that tax cuts are the best way to achieve things. Actually, the best way to ensure people are better off in the long run is by ensuring your economy is growing, that prosperity is uh, equally spread. One of the more startling things I think I heard from this former uh, government special advisor uh, on Monday morning was. The fact that she described the level of inequality in this country as disgusting, and that's someone who used to work with a Conservative Chancellor saying that. And, and to a certain extent, yes, the, you can argue about what is a productive investment. The fact, the fact is that we lived, we have lived in, we live, lived in a, we've lived in a country for most of the time I've been an adult where the poorest have gotten poorer, and the rich, the richest people have generally speaking gotten richer, and, and most people in between have seen their their incomes the best stay the same in cash terms mm. now that isn't to say that if you are wealthy you are immune to the problems we we do all ultimately live in a country where you know there's, there's a fantastic picture of support mccartney taking the train for example mm. we do i think it's the mark of it you know the fact we can be very proud of the fact that we do have public services that people who are well off do do use them as well. I think that says something about it. It's not it's not an it's not an elitist point to say that you know if you're rich you should be able to use the NHS. I think that's a perfectly legitimate point. But what it does start to bring into question is the scope of not just where tax burdens should fall, but also if this is probably where there are actually there could be a more nuanced discussion around say that the prime minister's private health insurance as well. Should should a man of Rishi Sunak's wealth be using the NHS? And that's quite that's quite a that's quite an uncomfortable conversation for us to be having as a society because ultimately, not only does it take people out, but also it creates a situation where, for example, just thinking of schools, for example, at the moment you could you could you could comfortably have, imagine people who are you know well off sending their kids to state school, but ultimately, do you really want to try and create a sort of two tier usage system where everyone who is wealthy go or you know even mm-hmm. in the top income deciles goes private and the the poorest people use the state stuff that that's going back to something that we spent a lot of time trying to undo and it creates a two-tier society in a sense which would i think ultimately down the line be more divisive one of the things that people overlook about the hs is actually it's quite a unifying thing that everyone irrespective of whatever their income can use and i think that's one of the great things about universalism but we are in a situation now where we will have to be having have, having to have very difficult conversations, I think, amongst ourselves, and particularly for policymakers. We you might have seen the story this week about the Scottish leaders debating whether wealthy people should pay to have NHS treatment as well. I personally don't want to see us move to a society where we where we have a sort of two tier thing. Like, you know, the same reason that we moved away from grammar schools and comprehensive you know, to to the the overall model we have now. People, I think, should be 
encouraged to live side by side and yes. not. I mean, you can argue that the wealthier, the wealthier they are, the more they are paying towards the NHS. Absolutely. And th- there is research to say this. And this isn't to say that there isn't cash there, but I, I, this is why I've never subscribed to the standard left wing argument just tax the rich because plenty of, plenty of research suggests that the riches do already pay more than their fair share. And the tax burden is as a high. Mm. Uh, Mike, let's talk about some of the political implications of the autumn statement, but just take a a brief pause so you get a chance to catch your breath. (laughs) Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best – it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with a political commentator, Mike Indian. And uh, Mike, you talked about some of the projections for the Chancellor being um, several years out, but can anybody really expect that the Conservatives have even uh, two years left of them? Presumably we are absolutely guaranteed uh, a Labour government at the um, the next election. So well, what on earth will Labour do with... With this, there've been new instances when Blair came in. The, you could argue the economy was in pretty good shape. I think by the time that Starmer gets in, that probably is not going to be the case. Well, this, there's a lot of chat online about whether this is 97 or 92, and I would submit it's probably neither. Certainly, there is a path for Richie Sunak to, to win the next election. I think if, if the economy does recover, but the, the I think the next couple of years people will instinctively feel poorer energy bills are still going to keep rising next year certainly mm. once the government cap lifts at the moment it's not it strikes to me it's striking to me not just it's not just people who are uh, I, I spent this time sometime this week down at a food bank in north london um, with my with my with my with my other job and the people going in there it's it's, it's as you'd expect it's it, the, the some people who obviously have been out of work for a while but also people who have shift work mm-hmm. coming in to claim food parcels they they're, they're servicing about 300 people but then again there are friends of mine i know who are you would think were comfortably well off have decent jobs but are also thinking about not putting the heating on as well and, and that's the kind of that's a different place irrespective of wherever wherever we were in 92 or in 97 yes you can talk about levels of public service investment being low in the 90s but the economy was actually in a good position and i suspect that labor will feel bound by the conservative spending priorities for the first couple of years and but what we what we are we are going to see labor coming in and having a massive spending spree it would be i think a missed opportunity if labor didn't come in at the next election i think actually there is a there is a sense that if they can articulate a sensible vision there's also a basic competence point as well i think actually the tories need to be out of office for a while this isn't so much a political point but more the fact that look at the turmoil they've been through since 2016 even even at any other points in the political cycle they you know labor have been in office for about mm. this amount of time but by the time they they left and it was only and don't forget they only just lost the 2010 election it wasn't a resounding victory this government's just had its largest ever mandate in the last term has had a full well have had a full five years arguably by Mm. the time we get to the next election as is their right they won the last election very clearly 
but we now know there will be no growth over this parliament. The economy will be the same size it was in 2019. It might even be a bit smaller. People yes. will certainly not be well off. And, and you can argue about things like the pandemic being in the way, but ultimately the majority of the reasons that we are in this situation, as I said before, it comes back to looking at that uh, fiscal black hole they had to fill. Mm. Three quarters of those are within the competence of the UK government to control. And the other one, the rise in interest rates was accelerated by mm. the plan for growth. The issue is going to be is we are going to spend increasing amounts of money over the next few years servicing the rising government debt. The, the Tories were elected in 2018, don't forget, on a commitment to get that down. Yes, there have been some things because of the pandemic for that, but don't forget as well that their failure to grow the economy is a large amount of the reason why we are in this situation. And most countries at the moment aren't looking at fiscal retrenchment in relation to... Um, their budget position because their economies are actually doing well and the OECD has projected that the UK is going to have the worst downturn of any advanced economy in the coming years so the the, the path for victory to select is there but it's narrow equally I have a great deal of hope in in terms of personal stuff for Starmer and Reeves what they need is to find those eye-catching retail politics pledges and I think positioning the focus back onto public service users as opposed to what the inputs to the system are, but looking at, say, waiting times, classroom sizes, what people are actually getting out of public services is quite a good thing to do, particularly if the tax burden is as high as it's going to be. There won't be much scope for them to overtly raise taxes. Certainly, I think Labour will have to think about certain targeted mm. windfall taxes to get money in where it's needed. But being smart and an active state doesn't say how to mean a big state. It's about ensuring that the money going into public services, into the country, is targeted towards those who need it yes. most. Uh, Mike, before we switch um, topics, we've got a lot of, I know that you still want to discuss. Just very briefly, do you think the Conservative Party is in terminal decline? Um, um, our other bigger picture contributor last week said he thought he'd be surprised if they got as many as 150 MPs in the next parliament. And there's obviously, I'm sure you've seen the, the talk that, you know, Many on the right of the Conservative Party feel so betrayed that that they think you know there'll be another sort of Brexity type party set up, which will obviously eat into the Conservatives' um, existing um, um, electoral base. Um, do you think they'll survive? I know they always manage to regroup and come back, and they you know they've got this extraordinary well, history. Su- but you do wonder what on earth they stand for now. They survived. 97, which is the worst defeat they'd had, and that, that was a that was a and that was a long, slow decline. We were talking about the Labour Party being in a similar position not not too long ago, actually, maybe even been a year and a half ago we were discussing mm. Labour being in a position total. I find it hard to imagine the Tory party would be uh, in terminal decline. I, I think that with the the, the the big question that stands in the way of any political new political party emerging and there is room on the right, I would argue, the Tory church is too broad. One thing this country doesn't lack for is a number of left-wing parties that Labour voters can join. So if you're not in Labour, you can be Lib Dem, Green, SNP, Plyth. You know, we have most parties in Parliament are on the left, with the exception of the DUP and the Tories on the right. But the election system works against that. So at the moment, would I expect Labour to be in power after the next election? Yes, I would. Would I expect the Tories to get a drubbing? I think they'll probably do better than people think at the moment. I think Labour has between a 15 to a 19 point poll lead. I'd be reluctant to put a number on it. I think they would probably get more than 200 seats. 
because I think they would survive because in England it's it's ultimately closer. What what we aren't going to see is Labour resurging in Scotland. So I would mm. say that it, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If Keir Starmer gets a majority of one in 2024, then he deserves a huge amount of credit because he will have taken Labour from a position of you know its worst defeat back into mm. government inside five years. And that is a remarkable achievement. And arguably, depending on what he and Rachel Reeves articulate, certainly in terms of their abilities, the country needs them now more than ever, I would say. Mm. But as for the Tory survival, well, that's that's in the stars, I'm afraid. Yes. Well, you mentioned Scotland there. So let's let's look up at Scotland, where the Scottish government have lost their case um, um, for having another independence referendum without permission of the um, of Parliament or the UK government. So what does this mean for Sturgeon, who is now sort of saying, well, next general election will effectively be a referendum. There's always been an inherent tension within the SNP about those who push for independence now and those like Nicola Sturgeon who are incrementalists. Now, Scotland is in a unique position where the SNP have been in government now for 15 years. They won power in 2007 under Alex Salmond. They held an independence referendum, having won an astonishing majority in 2011. The referendum was won clearly by the S campaign by nine, sorry, by the No campaign by nine points, and we are eight years later. This was never ever going to go away. The SNP have continued in power in Scotland. So the question is then: if we have a nationalist party winning elections, does that then mean that there is a majority in support of Scotland leaving the UK? The answer is unequivocally no. The, basically, the, the case that Nicola Sturgeon tried to put at this at the moment was that the last time the referendum was granted in 2014, there was an agreement reached between David Cameron and, and uh, Alex Salmond because under the devolved settlement, constitution matters are reserved legally for the Westminster government. So David Cameron gave legal permission effectively for a referendum after agreeing with Alex Salmond. They had a two-year campaign. Actually, I would say in terms of referendum campaigns, the Brexit referendum could have learned a lot from it. It was very well structured. It was very well argued, very high turnout. Both sides had a great deal of information out there about what was going on. Yes, there was the usual going back and forth, but ultimately it was a campaign where there was a lot of information out there. And the SNP, to their credit, did a huge white paper on what an independent Scotland would look like too. Fast forward to now, this case this week was about the SNP getting that legal permission again, or whether they could just pass an act in the Scottish Parliament and hold a referendum on their date. The, the Supreme Court, the UK Supreme Court ruled unequivocally there wasn't a point of law to support that. It didn't say independence itself wasn't allowed. It did say that the Scottish government can't unilaterally hold a referendum and we're not going to see a situation like in Catalonia where the regional government just goes ahead and has a referendum mm. anyway. What Nicola Sturgeon has instead done is, is is a bit of a wheeze. She has said that if the SNP wins more than 50% of support at the next general election, uh, that probably means in terms of votes, not in terms of seats, because they they win most of the seats anyway, but they can get that without winning majority of the vote. If they get majority of the vote at the next election, then that will be a de facto referendum on independence. Now, this is a, a false equivalence. You can, they do say they have won, they'll say they've won seven or eight elections since 2007. And yes, they have done. But for most of that time, they've been in a minority in Holyrood. Most people don't vote Scottish Parliament elections as well. Mm. The UK parliamentary elections, again, it's about two thirds. So again, it's not you can't use that as a poll, but it gets her out of it. It gets her, it gives her another couple of years 
worth of scope. And of course, the SP has the same problem that all these big parties have when they depend, they're dependent, so dependent on a personality, is who follows Nicola Sturgeon. She has been there for quite a while now. She's, she's into her the ninth year mm-hmm. of her first ministership. The SNP has a track record of not running the public services in Scotland very well at all. Local government, education, attainment particularly is a massive issue. They focus on populist policies. But because of the Westminster government model, they keep being elected in. So a lot of people like the sort of semi-progressive veneer they have, but they forget the SNP is essentially like, like UKIP before it, like the Brexit party, mm. a single issue party as well. And most people don't really want constitutional change, but they want cost of living stuff they want to have things yes. together and i'd argue that breaking up the union the way would leave us all poorer it would leave us all worse off and, and certainly in scotland where there are high levels of deprivation it's better to be part of a more successful economic union as well but the longer this decline persists that the weaker that argument gets so there's another thing for rishi yes. select to watch yes. yourself for i will give the prime minister credit for one thing though he certainly learned from let's trust in the sense that one of the first things he did was he went to a meeting of the the three devolved governments and he was photographed shaking nicola sturgeon's hand so he's tried to have a, a friendlier relationship with her and that will serve him better in the long term than this silly i'm going to ignore her yeah stance um, that trust had now you mentioned earlier paul mccartney getting on the train if he tried to do that in the next few weeks he could have problems because we've got another raft of rail strikes just very briefly um tell us what's going on here are we a postal strike as well i mean it's not that long ago strikes were actually had become relatively uncommon <laughs> uh, the winter of now is the winter of our discontent yeah. <laughs> the uh, well as we speak actually the general secretary of the rmt and media darling mick lynch is meeting with the transport secretary mark harbour so i hope that these strikes will be averted. The RMT know exactly what they're doing. They're a very effective lobbying body. They're very effective on behalf of the members. On one hand, you can't really begrudge them that they they do exactly what they need to do. They get attention. They need there is a there is a big hole in public transport funding post COVID. About twenty percent that the government stopped bridging because we chose to have a largely privatised. Um, public transport structure uh, dependent on fares that essentially during the pandemic came home to a lot of those chickens came home to roost because people couldn't travel and the result has been that there will have to be difficult decisions taken to close that spending gap now the government says the rmt has to accept this the rmt are digging their heels in there are strikes put in between now and the beginning of january thankfully nothing immediately before christmas but certainly in the couple of weeks leading up to it there could be as well and for someone like me who lives in London, it doesn't own a car, uses trains a lot. This comes back to, again, outputs. I think that any sensible uh, government, certainly Labour, need to focus on what people are getting out of the public service. We've put a lot of money in. Yes, it's not a quid pro quo. Yes, there is a benefit to having well-funded public services. But I think if we can bring that focus back to what people can see as tangible outcomes for improvement, realistic things that new labor's commitment to cut class sizes getting train waiting times down to below say 10 minutes or so x number trains running on time new infrastructure improvement connections not glamorous stuff but important stuff Mm. that's labor's credible credible option for getting back into government there as well and i hope that's the route star and reeves will go down it certainly feels to me like they're leaning that way mike thank you very much indeed that's uh, Mike Indian, political commentator and author, of course, of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike, I hope we'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. That's it for The Bigger Picture. The Bigger Picture. 
going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. 